Hi, this is Alan Alexandrov, and I am director of the Global Summitry Project. Uh, all our activities can be found at um, globalsummitryproject.com. And you will note, by the way, uh, that we have just been able to join the Rising Brixham blog uh, to the homepage of uh, globalsummitryproject.com, so you can go there as well uh, <clears throat> to get the Rising Brixham blog. It is my great pleasure to invite into the virtual studio uh, today uh, Jessica Chen Weiss. Um, this is um, Shaking the Global Order, Series 2, Episode 16, and it's an opportunity to, for me to sit with uh, Jessica in the virtual studio to examine the aftermath of the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and the impact it will have on uh, Chinese foreign policy and U.S.-China policy in particular. <clears throat> so, um, you will note that uh, Jessica Chen Weiss is the uh, Michael uh, J. Zak Professor for China and Asia-Pacific Studies and an Associate Professor of Government at Cornell University, uh, a political science editor of the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog, and a non-resident senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, Jessica is the author of Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations, and that was an Oxford University Press publication, 2014, and she has written uh, a variety of articles uh, in the New York Times recently and in Foreign Affairs. So, uh, welcome uh, Jessica Chen Weiss into the virtual studio. So, uh, welcome Jessica to the virtual studio. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great. Okay, so obviously everybody's had paid some attention to the 20th National Party Congress of the uh, uh, Communist Party of China. Um, how how would you characterize what Xi Jinping presented to the to the Congress and the delegates? I mean, given that he spoke for two hours uh, um, in his initial report. So first, I would say that there was a lot of continuity in policy, but there was definitely much greater sign or emphasis on the sort of potential dangers that lie ahead for China and the, the stormy seas. And, you know, in many ways, it sounded like Xi Jinping was, you know, stealing the party and the nation really for, you know, protracted struggle, which is a theme of his comments in the past. But I think compared with previous such uh, reports, you know, there was a much greater focus on on security uh, mm -hmm. as well as the, um, you know, the need to kind of band together, um, you know, to stand up to and, and be ready to face, uh, you know, potentially very severe um, challenges that may arise from, you know, in the backdrop here, I think, is the, you know, growing U.S.-China tension. Is, is that, you know, when he, when he starts, when he talks about this, this, you know, notion of conflict, is that, is that what we're to focus on? The U.S. Well, I mean, I think that he he wants. I mean, I think that there's still an emphasis. There's a lot been made of you know, is China still see itself in a period of strategic opportunity? 
you know, that exact phrase wasn't used in quite the same way, but it was in some ways hedged against by talking about the, you know, this period of opportunity coexists with risks and challenges. Mm-hmm. And so it is, um, you know, I, I think this is, you know, consistent with where she has taken the party, um, the the trends of the times really here. Um, you know, so on the one hand, you have Xi Jinping and the, you know, the new, you know, Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee reflecting, you know, that she really got his, has gotten his way in terms of consolidating power, promoting loyalists, et cetera. But it also, you know, reflects his, I think, sense that, uh, you know, the, the risks will be as great as opportunities going forward. And so there isn't, even though there, of course, there's plenty of uh, rhetoric about celebrating China's accomplishments, mm-hmm. there's, I think, uh, you know, much greater recognition that the path ahead will be as, if not more, turbulent. Okay. I, I, let's comment on both the, you know, the domestic side and, and, and the foreign policy side for a second. I mean, I think folks were uh, surprised uh, by the fact that um, the appointments seem to exclude, uh, you know, folks uh, who, who, particularly the Hu Jintao faction, seems to have kind of been eliminated. You know, Hu uh, Chun Chunhua, uh, Li Keqiang. These are all folks that you know, in some ways, were related to um, the Hu Jintao faction, and they're all gone. So what? You know, what's the consequences of having these loyalists, uh, all these folk uh, uh, around in the standing committee, the seven, and then the Politburo, which I take it is not 25 right now, it's 24. What the risk here is, the of course, I mean, the risk oh. here is that Xi Jinping is not going to get very good advice or there's not going to be the same kind of, you know, in, internal, you know, debate that might have once characterized the top echelons of the Chinese Communist Party. But, you know, we haven't really seen that, you know, that type of kind of intra-party democracy or conflict. That hasn't really been a feature of Xi Jinping's uh, leadership in any case. Mm-hmm. This is just, I think, really cementing that in terms of the top leadership posts. But, you know, the risk going forward is that, you know, you have Xi surrounded by a lot of yes men, no women, of course. And, um, but there still is reality to contend with, right? And so I actually think that the, uh, you know, Xi Jinping uh, and his coterie are still going to have to, you know, grapple with the fact that there are tensions between their various goals of, you know, continuing to uh, pursue uh, development and innovation, as well as the kind of emphasis on, uh, you know, zero COVID and social stability. Mm-hmm. And figuring mm-hmm. out that, that has, in my view, little to do with who is exactly, you know, sitting around the table. They're still going to have to confront these trade-offs. And the question is, with the kind of folks he's put placed around him, will they, uh, you know, be able to adapt or show any kind of flexibility collectively, even if it may not? I mean, I don't see any signs of divisions within, right, at the top. Right. Echelon. So, notwithstanding the loyalists, your your focus is on more on okay. So, can they actually deal with the crises or the problems that emerge in the next? in the next while, whether it's just Chinese foreign policy more generally or more specifically U.S.-China policy. Right, because, you know, there are, as I said, there are trade-offs in terms of what it is that Xi Jinping, he himself is trying to achieve. And so figuring out how he calibrates between these different objectives, you know, to what extent does the international environment, um, you know, provide 
you know, different alternative, you know, p- pathways or scenarios. You know, mm-hmm. there there are a lot of factors here that you know don't only boil down to who's you know sitting uh, inside the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. Right. And, uh, you know, what is he aiming for from your perspective? I mean, he talks about rejuvenation, you know, the the China, you know, becoming a great nation. I mean, again, what is this? How do we describe what that ultimately means in in terms of foreign policy activity? Well, so, you know, what I see Xi Jinping is is meaning by national rejuvenation, right? Um, you know, is really to be a you know a respected peer of the United States on the global stage. It's to be world class. It's to be leading. And there's a question as to whether that is the leading or among the leading powers. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. to be accorded a certain amount of respect and in some cases deference on the world stage. And so, and of course, that you know he has specifically. Um, linked rejuvenation by 2049 to uh, a desire for quote-unquote reunification with Taiwan. But it also is about having a world-class military, modernization more broadly. Um, And so, you know, there are different aspects. These are not all of a piece. And so I think the real question is to what extent will he, you know, and of course beneath all of this is the, you know, continued, you know, rule of the Chinese Communist Party, which he asserted quite clearly you know, mm-hmm. will not change color, uh, you know, will not change stripes. And and so, you know, stability above all, I think we'll have to figure out. And as we see going forward, how he, you know, adjudicates amongst these different priorities. And Okay. Uh, so it's interesting that um, uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd of Australia, who, who uh, is also now, I guess, President CEO of the Asia Societies, uh, and uh, he um, wrote a piece very recently, and I just wanted to pick up on that in the Financial Times, just following the 20th Party Congress. And um, he identified that there had been, you know, standard references going back to the 90s um, with the reflection on uh, peace and development as the major underlying trend uh, in in all these statements, Um, you know, and that identifying a relatively benign environment. Um, But the emphasis, according to Rudd, uh, is that uh, all those standard phrases Peace and development, in particular, but others as well, um, were gone from from this report, and that um, uh, the party no longer rules out the possibility of major war in the foreseeable future. Um, so that, uh, and, and he then uh, says, "Okay, so the focus of of the twentieth Party Congress is on national security, not on economic development." Do you see it that way? I don't think that it's quite as stark as that. I mean, I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of, uh, you know, conversation now or interpretations that see this as a completely new era. And I would just yeah. say that this is sort of like one more ratchet in that direction. But it's okay. this has been happening uh, over a period of years already. Um, and so, you know, it is important to read and and see the distinctions and what the the words that come out in these reports, because they reflect a lot of you know, internal deliberation and, and consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that it is, you know, more hedged against in the current report doesn't appear in the same, uh, with that as great of emphasis is is important to note. But it's also was something that was, you know, surfaced in uh, conversations between Xi and Biden uh, earlier. 
uh, where he told, uh, where Xi Jinping told Biden that, you know, peace and development reigns the dominant trend, but is under unprecedented stress. And so this is sort of, you know, again, it's sort of like codifying what I think had been a movement toward this, uh, you know, in this, this direction for, for a bit of time. For some time. Mm-hmm. So just one reflection on, on personnel I wanted to ask you about, and that was really in the foreign policy side. Um, uh, and that was the fact that Wang Yi seems to have more than uh, survived. He's joined, in fact, the uh, uh, 24-member Politburo, and it appears that he may be the director general, uh, general of the general office of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission. In other words, he replaces then Yang Jiechi, right? And uh, Wang, and he was, um, he advanced uh, in many respects wolf warrior diplomacy. And the other fellow that I wanted to raise was Wang Huning, who, of course, uh, is, uh, you know, a, a focus, who has a focus on. Um, uh, uh, ideology, uh, and as he was viewed as as a leading theorist of wolf warrior diplomacy, the fact that both these guys uh, are uh, remain in in you know in leadership positions does that tell us something about the way in which we're going to see foreign policy from China as a result of that? I know this is personality, but nevertheless. Sure, but I mean, as I said, I think this is a lot of continuity here. Um, okay, you know, I think that the both the it's important not only to look at the people who are in place, but also the words and the continued emphasis on, you know, dare to struggle and be good at fighting, which is she's sort of invocation, mm-hmm. um, exhortation mm-hmm. of the diplomatic corps to be show much more resolve. Um, and I mean, the theory being that, you know, to show weakness, to show restraint is to invite, uh, you know, bullying and, and, I see. and mm-hmm. further pressure and to show resolve is the way to force others to respect you. Now, as a theory of the case that I, I don't know, you know, has yet to really bear, I think, a lot of fruit in terms of, uh, you know, obviously opinion around the world toward China, especially in developed democracies. But that's the way I think she has characterized it. It came through in the speech. And really, it's, you know, it's that line that, you know, diplomats like Wang Yi have really been following. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, mm-hmm. you know, so this is not some, like, separate uh, argument about wolf warrior diplomacy that Wang Yi is should be known for. He's has adapted over the times uh, to present and perform the the face the of you know of, of Chinese uh, diplomacy and power that that Xi Jinping has called for. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me turn then uh, to uh, the economy because uh, it it, uh, it was apparent that well I mean the. Focus of the 20th Party National Congress was clearly where the leadership wanted to be. And as a result, the GDP figures were delayed from being released, as as a whole uh, raft of folk pointed out. And um, it it became that they those numbers were released and um, the numbers were uh, GDP growth for the quarter of three point nine percent which is kind of better than what people had anticipated. But still, in in the overall, for the first nine months uh, for China, that's uh, 3% um, uh, growth, uh, economic growth. And that's way off the official targets of 5.5%. It also pointed, also pointed out is that export uh, growth continued to slow. 
that the housing market uh, remains in difficulty in China and uh, that um, uh, consumer spending has, in effect, decelerated over the last period. So, the, you know, the, how serious, how serious uh, is this for the leadership that, you know, you've got this rather more um, serious uh, economic picture for China as opposed to where it was, let's say, two, three years ago? We're clearly entering a period or have entered a period of, you know, relatively slower uh, Chinese growth and exactly what its trajectory looks like going forward economically will, I think, largely depend on the decisions they make regarding uh, moving away from or relaxing their zero COVID policies. But the fact that the you know the GDP number was even set at all it suggests and that they then released it, I think that there is still, you know, despite its you know reduced emphasis, still an, an interest in using GDP targeting uh, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. you know motivate the system uh, to you know achieve some degree of development, even as they're balancing these uh, different objectives, including the sort of common prosperity, more equitable, higher quality growth. You know, on this point, I, you know, I'd recommend my colleague, uh, Jeremy Wallace's work here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he has a new book out on the you know, role of GDP statistics in Chinese, um, the political imagination, its role in targeting and, and how it has become less central over time to how uh, the Chinese communist Party has governed under Xi Jinping. His mm-hmm. name is Jeremy Wallace, and, the, and that book is Seeking Truth and Hiding Facts. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, but, do, do, you know, is it likely then that China would turn to what it's turned to in the past, which is to jack up investments as a way to, you know, in effect, impact uh, on overall economic growth in China? I mean, is that where the party would be and the leadership would be more particularly would be driven to in the face of what appears to be a much slower uh, period of economic growth? I think the challenge here is that there's been such you know bloated spending on infrastructure um, that there's just enormous levels of debt that still need to be unwound before uh, you know China can pursue a more kind of sustainable and balanced form of, of economic growth. And so that old model, um, you know, although it may be tempting to try to kind of revitalize, it, my understanding from those who really, you know, focus on the Chinese economy is that that those possibilities are increasingly tapped out or um, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So uh, one last question, uh, Jessica, and this it takes us back to U.S.-China relations. Um you know, uh, the Biden administration has, uh, particularly with respect to um, global governance institutions, has particularly focused on uh, kind of the G7 in in the last uh, while. Um, Jake Sullivan, uh, his uh, advisor um, on the NSA, has called it the steering committee of the free world. Problem being, of course, the G7 or even an augmented G7, the major uh, Asia player is Japan. And at the moment, that's kind of it. And there's no uh, global South representation on the G7. On the, uh, you know, the G20 is where you get the significant um, players, uh, significant economic players from the from the global south. And mo- most particularly, um, you have China uh, in the G, uh, G7. But this administration talks very little 
about about the G20. So, where, you know, where can we see then um, uh, basically global governance collaboration um, for the U.S. and China when the, there is that focus on the autocracy versus democracy side of the G7? So there's a couple of things going on here. I think that in addition, there is, of course, this effort to work with like-minded democracies. Sure. But there's also, you can see this in the national security strategy, the insistence on working with broader coalitions of states mm-hmm. um, and you know, working with China where U.S. and Chinese interests align, including on climate change, pandemics, counter-narcotics, uh, non-proliferation. That's a theory that's the theory of the case, but in practice, the I would say that the balance of effort, um, you know, toward shaping the environment around China, working with other countries to counterbalance China, um, mm-hmm. you know, is crowding out the kind of attention, time, and resources toward these broader, more inclusive groupings. And it's for that reason that I, you know, argue that even that this strategy of working around China may or may not, you know, bear fruit in terms of revitalizing the international order if it takes you know, does it happens at the expense of uh, these broader efforts to work with, uh, you know, inclusive grouping to mm-hmm. you know, chart the future direction in ways that, uh, you know, where China remains on the inside rather than increasingly on the outside of U.S.-led efforts to to lead multilaterally. Right. And I, I take it you're referencing the New York Times uh, piece in particular? I was that is, I was also thinking about the foreign affairs. Foreign affairs piece, piece. yes. They, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, you know, it's certainly uh, Chinese uh, leadership, uh, Wang Yi is who I think of most particularly, has said, you know, because the United States in a sense is saying, well, we can we can do both. We can do collaboration and we can do, you know, serious competition. Wang Yi comes back and says, no, 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 Um, you know, this kind of compartmentalization, that's a term he didn't use, but others have, uh, where you you can, you know, compete, compete, compete. And on the other hand, you can collaborate around the big uh, transnational issues like climate change, like global health uh, pandemic and so forth. He says, no, 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 you can't do that. We're not prepared to do that with Mm -hmm. respect to, uh, you know, allowing that competition. But, oh, let's forget about it while we deal with uh, we deal with the global governance issues issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you how do you get around that problem, it seems to me? Well, as I suggested, I don't think that it's likely to you know bear the kind of fruit in terms of the scope of the progress that we need to be able to make on some of these shared challenges. Mm-hmm. So I do think that, you know, I, and I put forward of different ways that I think would be important for the United States and China to discuss ways of bounding the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to lowering the temperature on critical issues like Taiwan, um, precisely so that we have the kind of time and attention and resources to to devote to uh, mm-hmm. other equally pressing challenges. Um, nobody, I would say, wants a crisis or war at this point over Taiwan. That would be catastrophic. But I would say that the trend lines look bad because of this action-reaction spiral that we're in. Right. And so we need to first lower the temperature find ways, not unilateral accommodation, but but reciprocal and coordinated steps that both the United States and Washington can take back from the brink to stabilize the situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we are building toward, you know, deep and abiding trust. I just think that the direction right now, this spiral is escalating at a clip that 
I don't think that we're necessarily fully you know, prepared for, and it's just not leading us in a, in a direction that will allow us to do the kinds of things that we want to do at home. Okay. To yeah. Institutionally, do you think the G20 could be helpful in that sense? Because you, you do have the United States, you do have China, you've got India, you've got all sorts of folks in, in that particular environment. I do think so. I think that the G20 or other, you know, broadly inclusive uh, meetings and summits are are exactly the kind of place where the United States and China should not be afraid to discuss, or at least begin these discussions. Jessica, I want to thank you very much for your the time and your insights into the uh, U.S.-China relations and Chinese foreign policy coming out of the 20th uh, Congress, the National Congress uh, of the party. Thank you very much. It's a real My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.